0: This is recording number 10922, from the Teaching Ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, May 15, 2011. This is the 8th message in the series titled, The Doctor's Gospel, by Randy Bolt. This message is titled, Displays of His Power. We're going to continue this morning our study of the Gospel of Luke that we are calling the Doctor's Gospel. The Doctor's Gospel. And I know that kind of sounds like an odd um, title, but Luke was a physician, a medical doctor. Now, of course, in uh, the first century, uh, medicine was not the same as it is today. But still, it attracted to the profession people who had the same kind of mentality, same sort of devotion to getting things right, paying attention, being methodical, uh, having inquisitive, scientific minds. And Luke was one of those. And so his gospel is unique in the... In the when, and you may not know this, but the first four books of the New Testament of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we call the gospels because they contain... Not that the rest of the Bible doesn't, but they contain the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, that he has come to pay the penalty for our sin, that we may have eternal life with Jesus. And <clears throat> so um, the, the, Luke's gospel of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, has this unique perspective of somebody writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not just out of his own head, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, still carrying the scent of his personality. So it has this unique perspective of being someone methodical, someone being very careful about the historic details. He was writing uh, the Gospel of Luke, and then the uh, second volume of his um, series, or two books, Luke and then the Acts of the Apostles, <clears throat> he was writing them, Um, for a guy named Theophilus, a a high-ranking person of some sort, so we we don't know for sure who he was, but to set in order an account of the things of the life of Jesus and the things pertaining to the um, early days of the church. And so anyway, I tend to be sort of a methodical kind of a guy, and so I relate a lot to Luke's gospel and his writing style. Um, that's not why we're doing this study. We're doing this study, however, because we believe, I believe, that it is timely for us in, in these days. And that God is speaking to us through it about the, the heart of Jesus for us. And I can't help, but when I think about Luke... I'm sure he didn't have a stethoscope in in the first century, but I can't help thinking of him as I have seen every other doctor in my life with that stethoscope around the neck. And that leads me to think of him uh, listening for the heart of Jesus. And that seems to come across page after page as we make our way through this gospel. We're looking at chapter 7 this week. And uh, so I'd like to ask you to turn there with me. And uh, today we're going to be talking about displays of his power because we're going to see several occasions where remarkable, powerful miracles were performed. And we're going to take some time to consider some of the things that I believe God wants us to understand about the conditions, the circumstances under which, within which God displays his power. How many of you have ever asked God for a miracle, parking space, you know something <laughs> <like>. <laughs> yeah, and i mean i don 't mean to make light of it um, you know i uh, i don 't need to tell you the story but a, um, about two and a half years ago, I was sitting in the um, surgical waiting room at Kaiser Vallejo while my wife was undergoing surgery that i was uh, that I was uh, uh, being told she was likely not to survive and praying for a miracle, and here she sits. God works miracles. He works miracles. And um, there are times, though, I know when you... Because as a pastor, I get I get to be with people in times of pretty intense um, struggle in their lives... And I know what it's like to have people crying out to God for miraculous intervention and not really knowing what they got to do to somehow convince him that this is the time to do it, you know. Um, Because we've all had the experience of having prayed and asked God for something as mundane as a parking place or as, um, you know, to us anyway, as important as what I mentioned a bit ago about my wife's, uh, healing, uh, and not seen God come through in a way that we thought he would. Let's just, let's just admit that. And we've had those questions. Well, why, why not? Why, why didn't you come through for me there? And we won't answer all of those questions today, but we're going to talk about some of that. That's what we're bumping up against. Because here's what happens. You go through that, or or you experience something on that order, and you tend then from that point on to be sort of less inclined to really engage in faith and really trust God for things because, you know, know, not quite sure. And I believe that God wants us to be, be people who get a hold of him and hold tightly to him Trusting him always in the midst of every circumstance and condition of our lives and believe that he is able to do as he says, his word says uh, that he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And I don't ever want to be a person whose grip is somehow loosened because I, you know, have experienced times when things didn't turn out the way that I thought they should. So let's dive in here today and see what the Lord might teach us about that as we listen for the heart of Jesus in these stories. Verse 1. Now, he, when he concluded all his sayings, and you'll remember uh, perhaps that, because it's been a few weeks since we left off here, that in chapter 6, there's an awful lot of red ink if you have a red-letter Bible. One of the reasons I'm not using my Kindle today is because I like seeing the red ink. And my Kindle's black and white. so. But anyway, there's a lot of pages there of uh, red ink. And that describes in a red letter in- edition of the Bible, those are the words of Jesus. <clears throat> and so he's finished speaking and uh, goes on to say, he entered Capernaum. Now, when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum's a, a city on the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Peter uh, and... Um, Andrew and James and John were from, and, and uh, Matthew, we think. And so a place where several of uh, Jesus' disciples were uh, you know, raised and had their homes and their businesses and became sort of the Galilean center of Jesus' ministry. And a certain centurion, verse 2 tells us, had a servant who was dear to him and was sick and ready to die. Now, Centurion was a, a Roman uh, officer military officer over a hundred men, so he was a pretty prominent and important figure we don 't know a whole lot about this man, um, except for one thing that we 're going to see in just a minute. But I want you just to no- to note that this is a person of uh, that would have been respected. Greatly, just by reason of his position of being a centurion. But not only that, we're going to find out that there's some, another reason why the Jewish people of Capernaum had, a, had more, re, even additional respect for this man. Verse 3. So when he heard about Jesus, that's the centurion, when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And you might think by reading this that it's kind of like, you know, here's this military officer who's used to just ordering people around, having his way uh, done uh, as he um, oversees and has charge of 100 men, that he calls in the, you know, Jewish elders and he says, here, I want you to go find this Jesus and gives them instructions about what he wants them to do. You're going to find that the heart behind what he has just, what we've just read is very different than that. Verse 4, and when they came to Jesus, the Jewish elders having been sent by the Roman centurion, when they came to Jesus, they begged him, Jesus, earnestly saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. Take note of that. Then they go on to say, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, I've been to this place. I've been to Capernaum, and I've been to the site of this synagogue. Now, what's left now, in a minute, I'm going to put a slide up here on the screen that's going to show you a picture of the current um, state, the ruins of this synagogue. And the ruins that you're going to see in this picture um, are kind of, uh, uh, well, they're, they're representative, but they're... the The synagogue that evidently this centurion had built for the Jews of Capernaum was destroyed, and another one was built on top of that. And those are the ruins that you're going to see, but at least it'll give you an idea of uh, what this man had built for the people, uh, the Jewish people of Capernaum. And so there's no reason for this man. The the Jews are. They are basically slaves to to Rome. They are an occupied people. And uh, there's no reason for this man, this centurion, out of his own resources, to build such an elaborate synagogue for the people in this little tiny town of Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, except that he has some kind of interest, some sort of seeking after the God of the Jews, and a respect at least, or a reverence for their God. He didn't need to buy their favor. <clears throat> now, perhaps, I mean, the cynic in us might, might say, "Well, it might, it might have bought him a measure of peace, uh, kind of lessened his load as a policeman in the, of that region if he did something that would endear him to the people." And of course, that's supposed. I mean, that that could be true. But I really think it's more than that. You're going to see why I think so in just a minute. Verse 6. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Now remember, the Jews, when they made the case to Jesus why he ought to help this guy, they said, he's deserving He built us a synagogue. He's deserving of your help. But when Jesus, he doesn't even get close to the guy's house, and the guy sends friends and says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not worthy of you to come to my house. That's why I sent the the Jewish elders to you. I, I I, I am not deserving of anything from you. I'm simply imploring your help on behalf of my servant. And I forgot to mention... Servants were a dime a dozen. I mean, literally, a dime a dozen. And this guy risks a whole lot in reaching out for help because it says that he was dear to him. His servant was dear to him. So there is something in this guy's heart that um, is uh, um, soft and tender towards... um, I think towards the things of God as well as towards people. But remember, the case was being made by the Jewish leaders. This guy's deserving only from his perspective. He says, No, I'm not, I'm not, don't even come to my house. I'm not even deserving of you to enter under my roof. And then verse 7 Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that follow him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. There's really only two people in the Bible the New Testament, I should say, be more specific, that Jesus described or Jesus is described as marveling about their faith. And neither of them were Jews. And so this guy he says, Don't come to my house. I'm not worthy of you to even step foot in under across my threshold. All you need to do, Jesus, is say the word. I know how this works. You are under some kind of authority that I can't even begin to comprehend. But I know what it's like on my side of things. I'm a man under authority. And because I have the authority of Rome backing me, when I tell one of my men to go, he's got to go. When I say to one of my men, come, they've got to come. When I say to my servant, do this, they've got to do it. I know that you are under some kind of authority that I, I respect and revere. But don't fully understand, I just know this, I know. You say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled, marveled, and said, I haven't found great this kind of faith anywhere in Israel. Verse 10, And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. A marvelous miracle of God's provision of healing. Now verse 11, Now, it happened the day after, so we're just one more day, that he went, Jesus went, into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now, The first uh, story, the Jewish leaders were making the case for why this man ought to be worthy or deserving of, of Christ's intervention. In this case, nobody's making that case, but it's just plain obvious. All of us would say, oh, well, this, surely this woman was deserving of Jesus doing something. I mean, this is her only son. She's a widow. And you can almost hear the violins start to crank up, right? And so the, Jesus encounters this um, funeral procession. Where was I? And verse 12. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Let's read that again. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Remember the person writing this is a medical doctor. (laughs) This must have blown his mind. I mean, of course, it would have blown mine, too, but I mean, can you imagine... Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. You know, notice here, nobody asks Jesus to do anything. But he had compassion on this woman. And so he presented her, his, her son alive again. Verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. Uh, Remember John the Baptist? He's in prison. And uh, so some of his followers, some of his um, disciples, they hear all the stuff that Jesus is doing, and they uh, uh, go to him and report. Verse 19, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Remember, John, when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, He declared to everybody present that this is the Son of God. This is the one who's been prophesied among us. And now, John's kind of having second thoughts. He's wondering, is this really... I mean, because John, like everybody else, understood Messiah to be, you know, Messiah's first, most important mission to be reestablishing the sovereignty of the people of Israel. The, the kingdom of God, so to speak, among the people of Israel. And so you know that John is just waiting. He's just been sitting in prison waiting for Jesus to do something about these stinking Romans. <laughs> and he's just out there healing people and preaching and whatnot. Come on, let's get on with the program here. We need to get rid of these Romans. And when he doesn't see this happening, he sends his... to. His disciples to Jesus to ask him about it. Verse twenty-one or 20, when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us, and, you know, that's kind of their calling card. That's the, the reason that they, are, are, they, want, they want Jesus to know that somebody important is backing them. John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one? And that's a reference to Messiah. Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or do we look for another? And that very hour, this is Jesus' response. And that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. That was his answer to the question. Are you the coming one or do we wait for somebody else? And Jesus went about and started healing people and stuff like that. And then verse 22, and Jesus answered and said to them, now he speaks to them. He says, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And this is sort of a side uh, point, but notice that Jesus includes the preaching of the gospel to those who uh, are without is being on par of all, with all of those other miracles. Don't ever um, think of, of the, God, the declaring of the good news of Jesus Christ as anything less than miraculous. It, it's a display of the power of God, just like anything else, of any of this list. And blessed is he. Here's where he kind of jabs back at John. He says, blessed or happy is he who is not offended because of me. What was being missed by many, or, or if not all, of the Jews was that Messiah had a two, uh, um, two. Uh, there's two parts to his mission, and Jesus had clearly articulated. We read about it back in chapter four. He clearly articulated his mission, and much of what he had to say had to do with setting people free, healing people, preaching the gospel. Yes, there will be a day when the kingdom of God is restored on earth as it is in heaven. But first things first. And he says to John's disciples, go on back and, and say, happy is he, this is what's happening. Happy is he who's not offended by me. Then what we, what we follow, so he gives a little jab at, or a little stab at John. So what, we fo- what follows there in the next several verses is Jesus then speaking to the crowd that's gathering there and making clear that John is truly a prophet and um, the one who was sent to go before Messiah. He's not, he doesn't want anybody to get the wrong idea about how he feels about John. But I want you to look now down to verse 31. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man, that's he's referring to himself, the son of man has come eating and drinking, the exact opposite. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine-dibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. What Jesus was saying is, make up your mind. You don't know what you want. First you want us to dance, then you want us to mourn. You want to call the shots, but you can't figure out what it is you really want. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's backtrack now through what we've read. And let me just make four points before we go home today about the displays of his power. And this is the picture of that synagogue in Capernaum. And remember this this the, this set of ruins was built on top of the one originally constructed on behalf of the Roman centurion that we read about. And I want to talk to you about uh, that first miracle we read about today, about the the centurion's servant being healed. It wasn't on the basis of him being deserving, was it? It was on the basis of faith. Faith. You know, a lot of times we have this a kind of odd notion that we need to figure out a way to convince God that we deserve his help. Have you ever found yourself doing that? It seems like when, we, when we're in trouble, isn't it, that we get real, real spiritual, real, real fast? <laughs> Why? Because we're trying to get God to, to think we deserve his help. We can't ever deserve God's help. There's nothing. The Bible says we're all sinners. We've all come short of the glory of God. And that the best, get this, the best we can do, our righteousness, I mean, this is not meant to make us feel bad or to put us down. It's just to state the case. He says the best you can do, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Look, Give it up. <laughs> we can't ever come before God on the basis of anything that we have done or will do or verses we've read or memorized or quoted or uh, hours we've spent on our knees in prayer or money we've given to this or that. Those things are, have no meaning when it comes to my relationship with God. There's only one thing that matters. His Son his cross, and his empty tomb. I guess that was three things, but it's all really just one thing. And it's on that basis alone and our faith in that that God uh, moves miraculously and dramatically in our lives. Faith, faith alone. Now, the second story that we read about there about the, the woman's son... Um, who was um, brought back to life. We We read there that Jesus had compassion on this woman. Nobody was even asking him to do anything. Have you ever had that happen? Where God just hauled off and did something fabulous for you, and you weren't even asking for it? Why? Because he loves you. That's it. He loves you. He loves you. And anything and everything that God ever does for us is on the basis of our faith and His loving compassion. Then we read about this incident with John the Baptist and and, and that whole thing. And I want to talk to you about another aspect of how God... Or or the conditions under which God demonstrates His power, displays His power. There is this really this element of timing, and it's kind of an interesting thing because God dwells outside of time. He's eternal, so He's not constrained by by things unfolding in a linear fashion. You know, one thing after another, after another, after another. With God, it's all now. It's all happening now. Everything. That's why when Moses said, well, uh, God, I'm going to go, I'm going to deliver this message to your people in, uh, in slavery in Egypt, but who, how, how do I identify you? Well, when, I, when I go to them, who should I say sent me? What God should I say sent me? He says, well, just tell them I am sent you. <laughs> because God dwells in, etern- in the realm of eternity, but he created all the parameters for time and space, set us in it. And so he is uh, respectful of that. And he works within the confines of timing. And there, is, there are elements of um, timing that are involved in the way God moves powerfully and miraculously among us. And you've had this experience things that you thought you needed to have right now. Mm-hmm. And then God doesn't come through, and then looking back you go, "Thank God you didn't do that." <laughs> God has timing to these things, and that the timing of God is perfect. Perfect. Excruciatingly perfect. You know what I mean? And I've heard people say that, you know, God comes through at the 11th hour, you know. I don't believe that. He comes through right on time. Mm -hmm. But I know what it feels like. And to me, 11th hour is not late enough. (laughs) There are a lot of times I think, God, you missed the train. This ship's already sailed. but he always comes through and always comes through exactly when it's needed. The last thing I want us to consider is this, this parable or the story that Jesus tells about children sitting in the marketplace and, um, you know whining about how they played but you didn't dance we played the flute for you and you didn't dance we mourned for you and you didn't you didn't mourn or weep and Jesus saying look you guys don't even know you, you don't even you can't even make up your mind you don't even know what you need or want that's a hard pill to swallow because we all think we do But our God in heaven has a little bit different perspective than we do. And it can be trusted, dear one. He is wise. And so, I'm not saying... Look, this is the tension that we live live with. What I'm going to say, I need to make sure that you understand, is set in balance between two things. One, my, my passionate... Uh, approach to the Almighty God with my needs, the things I think I need, without reservation or without hesitation of any sort, I bring to Him the cry of my heart and I put my faith and my trust in Him completely, knowing that it's not on the basis of my deserving anything from Him, but He loves me and He's invited me To bring to him everything of my heart's cry so I do I come I bring him my heart's cry and I trust that he his authority is all that's needed all he needs to do is speak the word and it'll be done but on the other side of that balance I trust his timing and I trust his wisdom there are when times Je- when Jesus has to say, not yet. And there are he has to say, no. But it's never because he doesn't love me. It's always exactly because he does love me. And he wants the best for me. I think I've used this illustration before. I could, I could give you a lot of them, but, uh, you know, from my own life, about the timing and wisdom of God. But maybe this one will just... Uh, uh, kind of tell the story when I was in um, when I was graduating from out of middle school and, and about ready to go into my first year of high school I had a girlfriend um, named Jamie and, um, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> uh, and um, I was sure we were destined to be for t- forever together <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You're right to laugh cuz what? I was like 14. <laughs> but I was convinced this was the one for me. Now, you know, any of us look, you know, uh, even hearing the story, we know how silly that kind of sounds. But to me, it it wasn't silly. From my, my little 14-year-old perspective on life, this was the biggest deal going, man. And you bet I did a lot of praying about that. But God loves me. <laughs> God loves me. And he knew that I desperately needed Susan Ann Cunningham in my life. <laughs> now I didn't know that he still doesn't know (laughs) yes I do yes I do but God knew that God knew that so this was a case where God says I love you son but no no and you know at, at the time at 14 when that when Jamie broke my heart <laughs> and I was, you know, blaming God for it and everything, I I couldn't have, I couldn't have, get this, I couldn't have understood the will of God. I couldn't have understood what he had. And we always demand to know. When we're in those situations, we always demand, tell me then, if you're not going to do this, then what are you going to do? When are you going to do it? Because we we, <laughs> we have this inflated perspective of our ability to understand these things. But it's kind of like when your kids, how many of you have parents? It's kind of like when your kids come to you when they're three years old and say, where do babies come from? Well, it's not that you don't want to tell them. It's not that you want to keep the information from them. It's that they can't understand. They don't have any frame of reference to hang that information on. So, you know, you tell them something. Oh, they they come from mothers. <laughs> well, well, how? Uh, you know how it goes, right? But they don't have the frame of reference to be able to deal with it. And we are like that. Listen, God has eternal perspective. And... For me to somehow demand that I know that I be able to comprehend and understand these things? How silly is that? It's like a 14-year-old demanding to know his eternal, I mean, his, uh, his marital destiny. That's where we trust. We just trust. And we rest in the knowledge that I can safely put my faith in God. Dear one, if you don't hear anything else today, please hear this. You can safely put your faith in God. Don't ever hesitate to trust him. Like that Roman centurion, know this. If he says go, it'll go. If he says come, it'll come. If he says do this, it'll be done. If he says don't do that, it won't be done. God in heaven can be trusted. You can invest your faith in him. and he loves you and everything he ever will ever do for you will be on the basis of that that's his motivation not not anything you'll do don't ever feel don't ever give place to that whole thing of feeling like you got to convince god to love you he already does as much as can be loved he loves you but there are aspects of his timing And aspects of His wisdom to come into play, and there's there's a balance here. I want to invite you now, as we close uh, the service, to consider something maybe going on in your own life right now, where you're asking God for a display of His power. I'm asking God for a miracle for one of my kids. I bet there's something in your life too where you need, you want, you passionately are crying out to God today for his intervention. Well, have that in mind as we go to prayer now. Let's get to our feet. Heavenly Father, I come to you on behalf of my own, on behalf of me, but on behalf of everyone gathered here with me. We come to the ground of your Unmeasurable, immeasurable compassion. We come to you and, and put our trust, our faith in your power. And Lord, we surrender to your timing and to your wisdom. Now, Lord, I pray that in every one of the situations, conditions, and circumstances that are on the minds of each one of of us here right now, I ask you, Lord, to move in power, to display your power with provision, with healing, with salvation, with encouragement, with guidance and direction, with breakthrough whatever is needed I ask you to move to provide it to do it